Good morning, LBC. Good morning. For those of you who may not know me, I am Bob Walderman. I'm a retired pastor, and I'm delighted to be here today to have the opportunity to break forth God's word to you. Um, uh, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts 22. We'll pick up right where uh, Paluk left off. I wanted to read chapter 22 down to verse 29 to you. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of the, our fathers, being zealous for, the, for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who uh, were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise. And go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight uh, and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone that you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. <clears throat> and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, by, uh, by, st standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune uh, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are, you about to, what are you about to do? 
for this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were, were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Now today, after reading that, I want you to know I'm going to focus mainly on just one verse in order to help us not only with the historical situation, but also why it's significant to us today. We're going to dig for one of the deepest and most dangerous sins uh, and show how it impacted Paul's life, how Christ confronted it in his life, and how we should confront it in our life. But first, I want to just give you a brief overview of the chapter that we just read. At the end of the previous chapter, chapter 21, Paul's audience had just tried to kill him, thinking that he had profaned the temple by sneaking a Gentile in beyond the court of the Gentiles. Now, Paul will remain in custody for the rest of the book of Acts. As Pastor spoke last week, there was a great deal of confusion about who Paul was and what his intentions were. And now the key, that's a key point, confusion. As Pastor also mentioned, Paul's supposed transgression was evidenced by recovered signs on the wall around the, t- the temple grounds, which said, <clears throat> quote, no alien may enter within the wall around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. And the fact that these signs were only written in Greek and Latin, but not Hebrew, the local vernacular, or Aramaic, uh, the common language, reflects the fact that they were explicitly targeting foreigners and not people from the immediate vicinity. So in the mind of the Jews, Paul had broken the law and defiled the temple, which was a crime worthy of death. In getting permission to speak, Paul speaks to the ruckus crowd, and he wisely speaks uh, to the crowd in Hebrew dialect or Aramaic. It showed his continued respect to his countrymen, the Jews, and that he was not some rebellious Egyptian or Gentile, though he had conversed much with the Gentiles. Yet he still retained the language and could speak it with ease. So he claims himself to be the Jew. Uh, Aramaic was used as a common language back then. And when Paul started to speak in Aramaic, The text tells us the crowd quieted and listened. In fact, the text states there was a great hush come over the crowd. They were very quiet. Paul had their attention. Then in verses 3 through 20, Paul retells the life story and his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, as he did back in chapter 9. And since Paul will retell his story again uh, to King Agrippa in chapter 26, I'm not going to delve into it here, but rather just make a couple of quick comments. In verse 3 to 5, he just states his uh, pedigree. Paul is born a Jew, studied under the most influential rabbi of the times, was steeped in the law, zealous for God, persecuted the way, meaning the Christians. And that information would have resonated with this particular crowd. In verses 6 through 10, Paul recounts his domestic road experience an encounter with Christ that left him blind. But what's important for us is to note in verse 8 
he specifically states that he is talking to Jesus of Nazareth. Then in verses 12 to 20, he tells of his meeting with Ananias, who did three things. He healed his blindness, baptized him, and commissioned Paul as a witness for Christ. He spoke of his days as Saul, who terrorized the church, which again would have resonated with the crowd. Now remember, during this whole speech, thus far the crowd was quiet. They were hushed the whole time. They remained quiet even as Paul spoke of meeting the risen Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. You would have expected at that point that the crowd would have erupted and started a riot. Because this is saying that Christ was risen and living, which would have vindicated Jesus' claims to deity, but they remained quiet. Then we come to uh, verses 21 and 23, which reads as follows. And he said to them, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voice and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they began shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. They were quiet while Paul spoke of meeting the risen Christ. But now they flew into a murderous rage. Why? Because they heard this word. Because he mentioned Gentiles. But we ask, why such the outrage? Why such animosity? Didn't the Old Testament speak about God saving the Gentiles? Such as Isaiah 49:6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. A light to the nations means to the Gentiles. So why the rage? In fact, the outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. As people from other nations wanted to learn and even begin to worship God of Israel, they would come to the temple. And since they were not Jewish, they were not allowed on the inner courts, but there was an outer court. Now think of, uh, think of our building as the temple, okay? Uh, the inner part, pastor's office, is the Holy of Holies. Only the, the high priest can go in there, okay? And only once a year. The rooms behind this wall, okay, were for the priests and all the activities. Everything else is outside, okay? But outside, right now, you are in the court of men, okay? Only men were allowed in here, all right? Behind those, that wall there in the foyer, that's the court of women. Women are allowed out there. All right? Outside in the parking lot is the court of the Gentiles. Herod built the court of the Gentiles as a compromise. It allowed Gentiles close to the temple, but not in the temple proper. This was similar to the Jim Crow laws of our own country. You can ride the bus, but you have to be in the back of the bus. You can come into our church, but you have to be in the balcony. John MacArthur writes, members of the crowd had listened to Paul up to this statement that God had sent him to minister to Gentiles. That would make them spiritually equal to the Jewish people before God, the most blatant heresy imaginable to the crowd. To accept Gentiles, 
would have made, had been the same as allowing them to walk into the temple directly, into the very presence of God. In their distorted thinking, the Messiah would never bother with Gentiles. We see this same reaction early on in Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just defeated the temptations of Satan, and we find him in the synagogue, starting in verse 17. Excuse me. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all, who sp- all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now there Jesus is reading a messianic dec- uh, passage declaring himself as God's anointed. You would think that that would cause an outburst of anger and denunciation. But verse 22 states, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Rather than riot, they marveled, which meant to hold in admiration. But remember, the Jews had a messianic antithesis, and they were ready to consider such claims. But then Jesus says something that causes a riot. He goes on to say, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed but Nahum the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a cliff of the town was built on so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through the midst, he went away. What were these things that they heard? What was the root of this riot? It was not his messianic claim. It was his referring to the Gentiles in Sidon and Syria as receiving God's grace instead of the Jews. The root of both riots was the sin of ethnocentrism, or as we might call it, racism raising its ugly head. John Stott wrote, It's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between Jews on one hand and Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenanced such a divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election 
into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, eat with a Gentile, and all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden. Now the Old Testament was not at fault for it promised salvation to the Gentiles. But over time, in the course of events, Gentiles uh, had become no better than dogs to the Jews. How'd that happen? Now before we shake our fist at the Jews and, 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 uh, and disgust and point fingers at them, we might consider using the analogy of our own country's declaration of independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's nothing wrong with that statement. It is a beautiful, noble statement. And yet slavery existed at the time of its writing and would continue for another 100 years before the 13th Amendment. And likewise, although the Old Testament promised inclusion for the Gentile nations, the actual reality was a discriminating exclusion. But you ever wonder why there was such deep hatred of the Gentiles? Well, it's complex. And we should not think that all the Jews thought, thought exactly the same about Paul or the gospel or the Gentiles. First, the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, the Jews were God's elect and were called to be separate from the nations. They had been the instrument of God's judgment upon sinful nations. God did not want them to mingle with or to give their sons and daughters to the nations, but to stay holy and separate, lest they become corrupted and defiled. But while God prohibited the Jews from going to the nations, the door was still open for the nations to come to the Jews. But the Jews interpreted the ingathering of the nations to be something more for the eschaton or the end times and not necessarily for the present. So their exclusiveness hardened to prejudice and discrimination towards the Gentiles. This exclusiveness became law. When Peter was commanded to go to the Gentile Cornelius in Acts 10.28, we read, Peter said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit, another, uh, visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Their racism had become systematic, meaning legalized, as well as systemic which uh, has to do with negative attitudes and actions. But secondly, there was a collective societal trauma. Collective trauma because the Jewish people had a long and dreadful history at the hands of nations, or the goyim, the Gentiles. Let me do a quick broad stroke of some of that history, which includes a foreshadowing of Antichrist. You see, back in the ancient world, <clears throat> excuse me, there were no rules for war. There was no just war. Conquerors were often uh, uh, ruthlessly barbaric. There was no 
Geneva Convention for the Humane Treatment of Prisoners. They often subjected the defeated Jews to slow, excruciating death. These nations introduced to the Jews things like crucifixion, as well as impaling, skinning a person alive. Death would take hours, if not days, in excruciating pain. Well, they would behead people, they would burn people alive, they would gouge out eyes and amputate parts of bodies, all for a tactic to know that it would create terror in their opponents. Around 926 BC, the king of, of Egypt, Shishak, came in and took over Jerusalem. And he took away all the treasures. It says it took away everything. 200 years later, 722 BC, the terrible Assyrians conquered the 10 northern tribes tribes, and their brutality was extreme even by ancient standards. Another 200 years, 586, Nebuchadnezzar, the destroyer of nations, obliterated Jerusalem and the temple and took a large portion of Judah into captivity for 70 years. Approximately another 200 years, 329, Alexander the Great came to the doors of Jerusalem, but the high priest opened the doors and he welcomed him in, and Alexander dealt favorably with the Jews, but Greek culture also found a fertile soil in Jerusalem, and many Jews began adopting Greek culture and leaving uh, the culture of Judaism. Alexander's empire eventually crumbled into two powers, the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south, and they would often fight against each other, and guess who was right in the middle of that? Uh, Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Then in 170 AD, uh, BC, Antiochus Epiphanes became king of the north, the Seleucids by nefarious means. He went to war against the Ptolemies in Egypt and nearly defeated them. Two years later, he tried to, to go back and finish the job, but this time the Romans sent a fleet of soldiers and stopped them. And Antioch, Antiochus was humiliated and furious. And he turned his, his fury to Jerusalem and the Jewish people. In 168 BC, the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, they're not scripture, but they contain a lot of historical information, um, as well as Daniel chapter 11 prophesied about this little horn, whom many believe is a shadow of the Antichrist. Antiochus and his army approached Jerusalem in a peaceful manner, but once the troops are inside the city, they turned on the Jewish people and killed many of them. In Maccabees, it states how evil he was. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and slay those who took refuge in their homes. He had circumcised infants, strangled and hung around their mother's neck, then crucified the mothers. He would burn any Old Testament scrolls as well as those who possessed them. There was a massacre of young and old, killing of women and children, slaughter of virgins and infants. He forbade circumcision, the Sabbath, any sacrifices and dietary rules and compelled the people to eat swine flesh. In the first three days, 80,000 were lost. He defiled the temple of God. He had a pagan altar placed on top of God's altar of sacrifice and commanded pagan sacrifices, a pig, to be made. And God foretold many of these events again in Daniel. <clears throat> he forced the Greek religion and culture on them, seeking to annihilate Judaism. Eventually, the Jews rebelled under the Maccabees and overthrew Antiochus' rule, and that victory is celebrated in Hanukkah. And yet after this, 
The Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem and surrounding in 63 BC. In decades before Jesus, the Roman armies came in and marched through the area, burning villages, enslaving the able-bodied, and killing the infirm. Whatever was needed for the benefit of the empire was at their disposal. The Romans disposed the ruling class uh, from the Maccabees, and the Senate declared Herod the king of the Jews in 40 BC. Herod himself was a, a bit of a maniac and was a brutal man who killed his father-in-law, several of his ten wives, two of his sons, and anyone considered a threat. He ignored the laws of God and to suit himself chose the favor of Rome over his own people. Um, he was ruling at the time of Jesus' birth and ordered the slaughter of all baby boys, two years old and younger in Bethlehem. Now unlike our country, which has gone to war, we have not experienced war on our soil since the Civil War. On the other hand, Israel had a long history of experiencing horrors of war, exile, and not just conquest, but near annihilation at the hands of Gentiles. <clears throat> you don't quickly get over such, uh, such plundering and torture and atrocities. The accounts are passed to generation to generation. The collective trauma becomes a point of identification. It's similar to the younger generations of Jews today who will never forget the Holocaust, though they themselves did not personally experience it. So when Paul starts preaching and says things like, in Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Or in Colossians 2, <clears throat> let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These were but shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Galatians 3.28, for there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. For the Jew, hearing that, it could be more than just new theology. It could sound like an echo of the past those that had tried to annihilate the Jews, forbidding circumcision, dismissing the dietary laws, minimizing the Sabbath, and claiming that the Jews and Gentiles must be one. That was hard to hear, and that's what some of them heard. So filled with painful memories and prejudice and bias, it was fertile ground for confusion and fear and mistakes and unsubstantiated accusations. And we saw this in the last chapter, in chapter 21, 34. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some were shouting something else. The confusion reigned in chapter 21, 21. And they had been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the, our customs. <clears throat> but as pastors pointed out last week, it wasn't accurate. That's not what he was saying, but that's what they were hearing. You know, whenever you are prejudiced against someone or some group, it's easy to jump to an unwarranted conclusion that justifies your actions. You know, it's the old, let's, let's hang them first and then give them a fair trial type of jump. Nor should we think that the animosity was one way. The Greeks were ethnocentric in their perception of others in the world. If a man did not have the ability to speak Greek, he was despised as a barbarian and subject to social and physical barriers. And all this played 
into the mix that swirled around Paul and his preaching. And now Paul is saying that the Gentiles were equal with the Jews and were fully accepted by God. For Judaism, that was the height of apostasy indeed. We might liken it to uh, asking blacks to fully accept members of the KKK who claimed repentance or vice versa. That's a hard sell because of collective trauma involved. The Chinese and Koreans are still awaiting an apology from Japan for the atrocities committed in World War II, which rivaled or surpassed those of the Nazis. And they remain suspicious of their intentions to today. Collective trauma and tensions remain. Hinduism, as practiced in India over 1,500 years, still has a caste system allowing, although legally outlawed, it lacks enforcement. Atrocities committed against the lowest caste, the untouchables, or the Dalits, are a daily occurrence. Discrimination, segregation, beatings, sexual assaults, homes burnt and even burnt alive are committed with virtual impunity by upper caste. In Rwanda, all right, it was after years of, uh, of tensions, it, it blew up in 1994 and genocide between the, the, the Tutsis and the Hutu and uh, uh, probably uh, as much as 800,000 people, mostly Tutsis, were murdered. And the list can go on and on. I can pick, you can pick any nation. You're going to find prejudice and discrimination. And sadly, even the church, once it rose to acceptance and power, became strongly anti-Semitic. The sin of racism, of hatred towards others or another group because they are just somehow different, is one of the hardest sins to overcome and one that leads to unimaginable suffering. Billy Graham once said, racial and ethnic hostility is the foremost social problem facing our world today. Let me just quickly close the chapter and then go back to expound further on these verse 21 and 22. <clears throat> In verse 24, 29, as the Roman people riot, the centurion brings Paul back into the barracks, and he plans to get to the bottom of things using a Roman option. I'm going to beat the truth out of him. But Paul plays the I am a Roman citizen card, okay, which brings the proceedings to a screeching halt. Roman citizenship carried many privileges, and a citizen could not even be found without due process. You might think, why didn't everyone just claim to be a Roman citizen and not get beaten? Well, because they investigated. And if they find out that you were lying, you wouldn't just get beaten, you would get executed. And now, moving back, <clears throat> the idea of accepting Gentiles as their equals, especially considering all the trauma the nations had inflicted, seemed not only offensive, but impossible for many. And yet, in the kingdom of God, this is the life-transforming grace of the gospel of reconciliation. This was the earth-shaking, paradigm-shifting mystery of Ephesians 3.6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Jesus set the example. He demonstrated that God is no respecter of persons and that there is to be one people made up of a diversity of peoples. 
While the beginning of his ministry was to the Jews, the lost sheep of Israel, increasingly he got involved with the Gentiles. And he was always challenging the status quo. You know, he reached out to the marginalized of society. He touched the leper. He spoke to the Samaritan woman. He made a Samaritan the hero of his parables. He performed a miracle for the Roman centurion. He uh, ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and all actions which were shocking because he broke down the walls of discrimination and segregation. Even the well-known incident when he drove the money changers out of the temple grounds, it was done primarily for the Gentiles. After Jesus overturns a few tables and chases them, he says in Mark eleven seventeen, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The first part comes from Isaiah 56, 7. 56, uh, 6 and 7 it, uh, in Isaiah reads, And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will ex be accepted on my altar, and my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. As one commentator wrote, the installation of stalls for the st sale of animals had the effect of transforming the court of Gentiles into an oriental bazaar. Jesus was appalled at the disregard for the sanctity of an area consecrated for the use of Gentiles. Jesus showed an astonishing display of zeal for God's honor and the sacredness of the temple for all nations. What they were doing was not wrong. In fact, it was necessary to sell animals for sacrifice for Passover. It was where they were doing it is what was wrong. The powers that be had determined that the court of Gentiles would be a convenient place to hold the market. Think about it this way. Our county executive decides that the local flea market and petting zoo should be held in our sanctuary every Sunday while we worship. That would be a little distracting, I think. All right? And that's exactly the scenario that was happening here. And that's what infuriated Jesus, that they had such a low regard for the Gentiles and interfered with their worship of the living God. Jesus was here to change things, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 13 through 20. But he talks about for, of Christ, for he, by the blood of Christ, we have drawn near. He, is, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. All right, and he goes on, he says, and uh, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came to break down walls, not literal walls, but walls of sin and prejudice and discrimination and hatred. And such reconciliation necessitates an enormous forgiveness and acceptance for those alienated and considered enemies. Through Christ's sacrifice, we are first reconciled to God, but we are also to be reconciled to one another. To be able to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do, they're doing, requires divine grace. But don't dismiss it as saying, well, yeah, but Bob, he was Christ. You know, he was kind of God. He could do that. I can't. I'm human. 
But there was Stephen, the first martyr. And we read of him, and it was, as they were stoning him, what does he do? He cries out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we may ask, how is it possible to forgive someone who has committed atrocities and abused or hurt us or our family? It's only possible through God's grace. And the realization that we have been forgiven of crimes against the Most High God. And I believe that that grace, that special grace, is only given at the moment that we will need it. Forgiveness might be easy to talk about, but it's hard to put into practice. Too many people, even Christians, hold on to grudges and bitterness. Are you familiar with that song, Matthew West's song, Forgiveness? Well, you know, that's based on, a, inspired by a true story. All right, a story of Renia Naper who chose to forgive Eric Smallridge, a drunk driver who took the life of her 20-year-old daughter. She advocated for a reduced sentence, and they went on to become friends. As West explained, the story made me take a look at my own life and ask myself if I'd be able to do the impossible just like she did. After the genocide in Rwanda, Rwanda now has six reconciliation villages where released prisoners guilty of taking part in the genocide have apologized and the survivors have forgiven them and they live together. One murderer told today lives nearby the widow of the man he killed and somehow they are friends. Their children and grandchildren play and share lunch together and their cows graze in the same field. And how many of you know the story of Corey Tenboom? Corey Tenboom uh, was a Christian, lived in Holland. Her and her family were uh, hiding Jews from the Nazis. She was arrested, her sister, her father. Her father died soon after, and Betsy would, uh, and Corey was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And she writes in her book, After the War, she would go back to Germany and to preach reconciliation and forgiveness that was possible in Christ. And she says, and that's when I saw him. And after the end of her speaking, he came forward. And all she could see was him dressed in his Nazi uniform. And he came up to her and he said, uh, a fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that you say, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. He said, I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? Is that possible? Yes. To see your, your sister basically starved to death? To remember the beatings? And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former God and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. 
If that degree of forgiveness is possible through the power of Christ, I am ashamed that I often held on to things and not forgiven people, although they hurt pale by comparison. In today's fractured climate, reconciliation and forgiveness is more important than ever. The need to understand, forgive, healing between individuals, groups, and nations. It may feel impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Even forgiveness and reconciliation, that is the power of the gospel. That is the power of Christ in us. Erasing racism and prejudice is not easy, but Jesus time and again showed us how. James 2 says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Partiality means that the fault of the one who called, uh, when called on to give judgment, has respect of the outward circumstances of man, not the intrinsic merits. One way to look and to check our hearts for seeds of racism and prejudice is this. When an incident happens anywhere, whether between black or white, whether between upper caste or untouchables, whether between Hutus or Tutsis or whomever, reverse things. Reverse the color or the standing or the ethnicity of perpetrator and victim. And then ask yourself, do I still feel the anger and outrage at this incident or less so? And if it's less so, we have tipped our hand and exposed a latent racism that cares more about color or class or ethnicity of the person rather than the humanity of the person. Stott wrote, the church is to be a new reconciled society in which no curtains, walls, or barriers are tolerated and which the divisive influences of race, nationality, rank, and sex have been destroyed. And furthermore, God intends that this, his church, be a model of what human community looks like when it comes under his rule of righteousness and peace. We have a responsibility as Christ's ambassadors to imitate God and to demonstrate to the world that we are no respecters of persons. And it's a truly wonderful and beautiful thing to see our diversity. But we need to work on, on, on getting to know each other deeper and deeper. We need to be able to appreciate and celebrate all our differences while not letting them divide us. We need to be hospitable and eager to serve one another without partiality and to love one another as Christ Jesus instructed us to do, as Jesus taught and demonstrated. How are we doing with that? We should strive here on earth to do what we will be doing in all eternity when we will be standing before the throne, shoulder to shoulder, in peace with those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and praising God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are no respecter of persons. We recognize, Lord, there is nothing in us worthy, Lord, but you have poured out your grace upon us. Lord, help us take to, to live in that grace as we live uh, amongst 
others, others who are our brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, to be instruments of your grace to those around us. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.